Welcome to the Region Free Gamers Podcast. Today, Dracula returns again and again. Uh, who invited this guy? Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Region Free Gamers Podcast, the podcast that is fluent in gaming. My name is Ozzy, and I will be your gracious host for the day. But before we get into the episode, there are a few housekeeping items that we want to raise. First, as we always say, remember that if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate that you spread the word and that you also go on iTunes and leave us a review. You don't really have to say much, but reviews really help us get our little show into the ears of more listeners. Second, I want to introduce my co-hosts. In the great wilderness, we have our dear friend, Paul Romalo, who is probably running on four hours of sleep. How are you holding up, Paul? Yeah. I'm holding up okay. You'll hear you'll hear a little bit of a hoarse voice today, but uh doesn't matter. It's still going to be good. Uh, he's here like a trooper. Um, also from Canada, coming back for the second time is Cameron Lasby, or as he's known in the Instagram world, 16-bit. So thanks for coming back, Cam. How are you doing on this fine morning? I'm doing just great, and it's my pleasure to be back again. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you. It's our pleasure. And lastly, we are super excited to make an announcement, so drumroll please. Remember that pleasant, smooth-talking Brit that we brought on a number of episodes? Uh, In fact, he has the distinction of being the first guest to be on multiple episodes. He was also the first guest, period. So, of course, we're talking about Jeff Ivatz, who goes by G-Spot Gaming on Instagram. More importantly, we are excited to announce that from this episode forward... Jeff will join the permanent rotation of Region Free Gamers host. So, woohoo! Uh, Indeed. <laughs> that's, we're really, really <laughs> excited about that. So, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, uh, no, thanks, guys. Thank you. Two things. First, congrats. Thank you. Second, why the hell would you agree to this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to get pulled into any trouble here, but I met him in the Yukon. <laughs> He got me into the basement. Let's just say he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, the Moose Mafia strikes again. Uh, there, there was definitely alcohol involved. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was pretty sly. It just sounds like you guys lost a bet on Windjammers or something, and you were like, <laughs> "That's like the one game we didn't play that night." Honestly, now that I think about it, Windjammers would have been really good. That would yeah. Been, yeah. Inst- instead, you guys played Bloodstain, which I know Jeff has some <laughs> thoughts about. <laughs> no, to be fair, we were we only had that in for what maybe a minute, and then we went into Cuphead, so it was good. Ah, uh, exactly. And, and Cuphead is a fantastic little game. And by the way, before we get into all that, let's just say. With Cuphead and Blazing Chrome coming out, we are really in a golden resurrection age for run-and-gun shooters because Cuphead is just absolutely fantastic. Um, And Blazing Chrome, as you guys know, is absolutely fantastic. So that sounds like a really fun night, guys. Yeah, no, Cuphead was... Cuphead blew me away. Like, I mean, it's it's one thing to kind of, you know, see screenshots and so on. I had never really watched the video. I think maybe I saw a trailer or something. But to actually see it in person, uh, it, it's it was actually unlike anything I had seen. The not only the animation style, but like the animation quality. It, it, man, if I was a little kid and I saw Cuphead, I would have been like, "Oh my god, this is the best thing I've ever it, seen." It's in my everything. Life. It's everything. And and for example, Blazing Chrome takes its cue from Contra Three and um and Metal Slug, and Cuphead just kind of goes the Gunstar Heroes route, but 
you know, even Gunstar Heroes, you know, it, it goes even beyond that. Um, so it's just unlike anything that you have seen before. Um, and the fact that it's on Switch, like a Microsoft published game on Switch, it's yes, pretty Switch. massive. Yeah, and, and it's it's probably the best. You know, I, I you know probably the Xbox One has the better quality, but it's probably not too noticeable the difference. Um, but the Switch is just fantastic for those types of games because you can just take it anywhere and just play it in the middle of the Yukon Territory while camping. Um, <laughs> so I I think you know I I envy you guys for being able to do that. Um, but Jeff, what are some of the topics that we'll hear you discuss on the podcast? Oof. Yeah, <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot, buddy. <laughs> on the spot, yeah, no, no. <laughs> trial by fire. <laughs> well, it, I mean, coming from the UK, there's definitely some things that I I have like close to my heart that maybe you guys in North America are, are aware of, but maybe not so not so you know not so keen on. I don't know, but um, there's definitely some British related things that I, I'd love to talk about in the future. So obviously, UK, Britain, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's got like a massive history in video games, especially in the eighties, early nineties. Um, people who were highly talented and highly skilled uh, were making a lot of games for a lot of publishers that people weren't really aware were actually British at the time. We also had our own gaming industry in terms of the, uh, like we had the Amstrad and we had the Commodore, things like this, which were very unique to Europe and the UK um and people in the 16 bit that's when you started seeing some really interesting influence so that's the sort of topics we want to go down um but also yeah i'm super keen on japanese related uh, uh intel information whatever you want to call it um and like the last few years i've really gotten into super famicom um and the the game boy advance so these are these are areas that i'm going to want to be uh, diving into so yeah yeah, fantastic. We really look forward to it. Um, and by the way, in case that Brexit leaves your job list, now you know what you can fall back upon. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. That's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so, with that bad joke out of the way, let's get on to the topic of today. Uh, during the early days of the podcast, we recorded an episode of the 8 bit Castlevania games, and that was a super fun episode. It was the first time that we had a Shakespearean rendition, um, a dramatic reading uh, on an episode. And, you know, Paul was pretty amazing there, I say. Um, so if you haven't listened to that one, check it out. You know, it's the first part to this episode. And so we have a real soft spot for the Castlevania series here at the Region Free Gamers headquarters. I mean, pretty much like any retro gamer, you know, Castlevania is right up there among the best franchises. So we decided to just jump a generation and make part two of that episode and go into the 16-bit era of the Castlevania series just as a follow-up. So um, we will be talking about Super Castlevania 4 for the Super Nintendo, Rondo of Blood for the PC Engine, and rounding it out with Castlevania Bloodlines for the Mega Drive and the Sega Genesis. So without further ado, let's get on with it. So Let's just jump back into our time machine to 1989. Um, development had finished on Castlevania 3 for the NES, and it was released in 1989 in Japan and 1990 in North America. So by this point, Castlevania was pretty huge. I mean, we're not going to say Mario huge, but it was pretty much a known quantity among gamers. Um, so the next step would be to make the jump to the 16-bit generation. So the Mega Drive had just been released in 1989 in Japan, and the Super Nintendo was about to launch in 1991. So Konami put its teams, um, you know, to work 
And so we got to the first game that we're going to talk about, and that's Super Castlevania 4. So Super Castlevania 4 was released on October 31, 1991 in Japan and December 4, 1991, which just so happens to be Arnie's birthday. So hooray, Arnie! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, as is the case, it was released a year later in the European territory. So screw you, Europe. Hey, um, hey, hey. <laughs> that's a common theme, guys, I know, but come on. Y- yeah, yeah, you guys always catch after on this episode, on yeah. this releases. Yeah. Uh, but guys, when did you first become aware of Super Castlevania Four? Uh, did you play it at the time, Paul? Yeah, yeah, I played it. I don't want to say I played it on release because I didn't get a Super Nintendo until Street Fighter Two kind of forced my hand. But after Street Fighter Two, the first game I I needed to get was Castlevania Four. Uh, quick digression: I'm not going to call it Super Castlevania Four. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's just it's Castlevania 4. All right, Castlevania calling it, 4. Calling it, <laughs> calling it Super Castlevania 4 implies that there is another Castlevania 4 and that this and one this is was more super than that one. <laughs> yeah. So no, this this is just Castlevania 4. Thank you. But you can just um, call it Super but, Castlevania. I mean because it's really just Castlevania 1 but supercharged. So That's No, it's not. It's yes. way longer. You can whip in eight directions. That's what, what supercharge means. That's what supercharge means. <laughs> it's Castlevania 4. Stop it. Just stop right. it. Castlevania 4. <laughs> but anyway, I played it at the time, and it, it was fantastic. I I actually traded, so a buddy of mine had it, and you know he brought it over, and I was like, this is incredible. I want it. And so I traded him my Game Boy for it. Great which trade. Is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's what we did at the time, right? We just kind of... Yeah. You know, everybody just trades everything and then you get your new thing and then you get sick of it and then you trade it to another friend and and so on and so forth. So I had a Game Boy that, you know, I just wasn't really using anymore. I didn't really have too much of an attachment to it. And so he wanted to play Final Fantasy Legend. And I was like, sweet, because I really want to play Super or sorry, Castlevania 4. <laughs> and yeah it was great man like everything about it the gameplay the graphics the music obviously the music right it uh it made a huge impression on me yeah and to go from you know because castlevania 3 had pretty amazing graphics for the nes i i'm a huge yeah. fan of castlevania 3 but to go from those graphics to the chunky detailed you know mode 7 graphics of castlevania 4 um it was a huge leap and it only came two years after and let me just say i'm still to this day surprised that this game was released just a few months after the super nintendo was released that completely blows my mind because it's you know one of the best looking games on the super nintendo bar none you know and it even surpasses games like dracula x which we'll talk about later uh, in terms of graphical you know looks so I, I'm just completely shocked that this came out so early in the SNES life cycle. Uh, but Jeff, what about you in Europe? Um, did you play this originally or when did you become you know, acquainted with this game? Yeah, like me in Castlevania had a, had a bit of a, a tumultuous uh, start. So uh, basically, I, I remember the first time <laughs> I played Castlevania uh, around, I think, a friend of my brother's or something like that. Um, it was like I was only six or seven and it was the most difficult game I'd ever played. Um, I just, oh, I just ca- yeah. came out of playing Sonic. I, I, yeah, because I had a Master System at the time, so I was playing Sonic, which was a... It wasn't like your Mega Drive. This was on a 
this was like still 8-bit, but at least it was accessible and it felt like you just jumped from platform to platform. So you pick up a new game, you think, oh, I'm just jumping from platform to platform. And there's, a, but no. there's only one way you can attack. <laughs> you have to go upstairs. It, it just felt like a really, it was just a brutal game. Um, yeah. And it still has kind of like that deliberate pacing of Castlevania games. I mean, it it feels a lot more flexible because, for example, you can uh, jump onto uh, stairs, which was a huge step oh, up from, yep, yep, yep. Um, you know, the earlier Castlevanias. And, you know, I think, you know, the developers said that they wanted to streamline a lot of the criticisms and the flaws yeah. that were present in um in the NES Castlevania. So for example, you have a little bit more control over your jumps. So it's it's not as if, you know, when you jump, you automatically commit to it. So there's a little bit more flexibility to Simon Belmont. Yeah. Um, but it's still a tough as nails game. Absolutely. But yeah, I didn't play it really fully for the first time. Um, I mean, Symphony of the Night kind of pulled me back in towards Castlevania. It was just, I mean, I was I was older. I was uh, 13, 14, so older, a bit more wiser, a bit more experienced. But then, as soon as like, as soon as that came out, you kind of kind of start thinking, okay, maybe maybe Castlevania is not as tough as I thought it was. I remember then playing <laughs> Super or Castlevania Four. Like, it must have been around a friend's house who still, for some reason, had his SNES hooked up at the time, and. I played it and I was like, no, this is still brutal. This is nothing like Symphony of the Night. Why is he not leveling up? (laughs) Why can't I just like glide backwards? What's going on? Um, Yeah. So yeah. So it, it, especially coming from Symphony, coming from Symphony, it's, it's a tough, you know, regression back to the norm Exactly. uh, because Symphony just feels completely different. You know, Alucard plays a lot more nimble and it's just a completely different game. It basically, exactly. Um, So to go back to this, it's like playing a whole different genre, essentially. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's not one-to-one and it's funny because Super Castlevania, you know, it was released on the SNES, but we wouldn't really see a re-release until the Wii virtual shop. Mm. So for a long time, if you wanted to play Super Castlevania, you had to whip up, sorry for the pun, um, <laughs> the <laughs> the old cartridge. So if you didn't have your Super Nintendo around or you didn't have the cartridge, you were basically stuck. Um, but, you know, with the Wii Virtual Console, you know, we managed to finally be able to play Super Castlevania 4 again. So with that, uh, Cam, what's uh, your experience with Super Castlevania 4? Well, my experience with Castlevania in general didn't happen until uh, much, much later in my life when I started uh, retro collecting. Um, I was very much aware of them uh, at the time when they were new games, but you know, if you if you didn't have it, or if uh, a friend didn't have it, then you probably didn't play it at the time, right? Yeah. So, um, with the Castlevania Four, I remember picking it up at uh, from a local store that had a sale one day, um, maybe about four or five years ago, and it was just amazing finally getting to play it, especially. Um, being such a step up from the 8-bit versions in terms of everything, right? Everything we've already covered, uh, graphics, control, um, music of that game is, is just phenomenal. It's some of the best music, I think, on the, uh, on the Super Nintendo. No, so I, I think some of the best music, period. Um, I, I honestly think it's some of the best video game music, you know, ever put down. Um, but Cam, did you play the NES games before playing Castlevania 4? I did. But uh, once again, it was uh, it was after I had started uh, c- collecting retro, so it was before, but not 
too much before, like maybe less than a year. Okay. But you had him fresh in your mind. So you were able yeah, to kind of sure. really witness the, the step up in graphical quality. Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's like night and day. Yeah, yeah. And especially, you know, with Castlevania 4, if we're going to talk about the graphics, you know, it has so many different technological achievements. So, for example, it has a lot of parallax crawling. So you see a lot of movement in the back that just kind of, you know, goes independently of the foreground and you can go to the background. And, you know, it kind of really shows you the techniques very early on. So the first level, you know, it shows you how to go from, you know, the the front to the background, uh, similar to what they did with uh, Super Mario World. Um, so it's it's a game that really took advantage of a lot of the the new found power um, on the Super NES. Um, so particularly one of the most I would say notorious maybe or more highlighted aspects of Super Castlevania Four. Sorry, Paul, um, is the Mode <laughs> Seven aspect. So how do you guys feel about the Mode Seven effects of Castlevania Four? How about Hit you, miss. Jeff? Hit a miss. Yeah, sorry, Jeff. I know Ozzy said over to you, Jeff, and then I started talking. But take it, take it. Here we are. Take it. You got it. <laughs> yep. Go, go for it. But Paul. yeah, no, hit hit or miss. Honestly, like there's there's one particular level. I think it's the fourth stage or something where it's rotating. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so there's one where it's just a graphical effect, and it, I don't think it has any effect on the gameplay, and it just kind of it creates this almost like three D spinning kind of look. You know, yeah, going from I know which foreground to background. Yeah, that looks incredible. And then there's another level where the platforms turn counterclockwise. Yep. And you have to hang from, you know, one of those little things that you whip and you hang from yep, them. Yep, yep. That, you know, a little bit less impressive. I think that that was kind of shoehorned in there yep. just to kind of have like, hey, this is mode seven. This is what it does. But as far as gameplay goes, I mean, that's probably the weakest level in the game, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like the best implementations of Mode 7 is, as you said, Paul, that first level you talked about, but also some of the enemies, like uh, the Golem uh, enemy, where as you hit him, he just kind, kind of starts scaling down. So he starts kind of losing bits and pieces until he becomes yes. smaller. Um, so I, I think it's those subtle effects, you know, that really add something to the game without feeling like a tech demo or showing off. Um, so what do you think, Cam? Do, do you like the Mode 7 effects in the game, uh, particularly coming at it you know, later on? Um, I, I think Mode 7 in general is, is just awesome on the, on the Super <laughs> Nintendo. Um, having said that, though... I take it you're the, an F-Zero fan. Yeah, I am, and Pilot Wings for that matter. But anyway, um, going back to that first uh, stage that Paul mentioned where like the background does that rotating thing... Um, there's a lot of slowdown in that in that particular part. I, from what I remember, like when you jump and whip an enemy, and it, it the game just tends to choke, and that's actually kind of disappointing for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, this this I, game really pushed the Super NES to its limits. It, um, it really did. And actually, considering as much Mode Seven there is in the game, there's no um, there's no additional hardware on the actual game cartridge to kind of assist the Mode 7. Like, for example, Pilot Wings had an extra uh, processor on the cartridge to help with all the Mode 7 calculations. This game did not. So to accomplish what it did without additional hardware is actually pretty impressive, te- technically speaking. 
No, and, and beyond that, I mean, you have to take into account that, you know, since this was a launch, like a launch window title, because it just came out months after its release, I think it was like six months after it came out in Japan and like, I think four months after it came out in the North America, like the SNES, um, developers still didn't really know how to work with the system and how to, you know, push its boundaries. Yeah. Um, so, for example, what you saw with Gradius 3, you know, there, that, that game is notorious for the slowdown. That game is almost unplayable because of its slowdown. Um, so a lot of games, you know, just did not perform well at all. So the fact that Castlevania 4 is very much playable and, you know, the only part is that it suffers a little bit in terms of the performance, um, it's really a testament to what they were able to achieve with the tools they had at hand. So I, I, I honestly find it very impressive. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind um, of a lot of what you can associate Konami with at that time. They were a developer who were constantly trying to push the hardware that they were working with um as you said like if they started working on it before the console got released you got to think they got this brand new dev t- uh, dev kit brand new like stuff to work with and to get what they got out of the first attempt on the console i think is extraordinary but i think we kind of take it for granted that uh, because that's what konami did uh they definitely had some misses but this one as apart from the slowdown and i recently played that level where you're talking about the slowdown and it does it does make you think, I just want to get through this as fast as possible because this is now painful. But at the time, I think that that would have been like an incredible feat of of, of, of uh, programming. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, for example, Greatest 3 was another Konami release and we saw that, you know, that team was not able yeah. to be as successful, you know. So it's it's incredible comparing, you know, within the same company how they kind of struggled with the hardware. Yeah, you have to think that uh, they threw the kitchen sink at this. Yep, yep, yep. Let's just uh, take a step back and, and just kind of talk about what Castlevania 4 really brought to the table. Um, it's kind of a reimagining of the first Castlevania. So it goes back to Simon Belmont, who was the protagonist of the first Castlevania, uh, the grandson or great-grandson of Trevor Belmont, who would show up in Castlevania 3. Uh, but this was really Dracula's first outing, you know, in terms of story uh, when we first encountered it. Uh, so it's, you know, it kind of goes through the progression of, you know, you start out in the outskirts of Transylvania and then you make your way into Dracula's castle until you face Dracula. Uh, but, you know, calling it a remake is kind of, you know, selling it short. This game is almost its own game. It's it's kind of a sequel remake. Um, so it kind of falls into this weird area, but um, it, it very much feels like its own game. Would you say so, Paul? I, I didn't even know that it was considered a remake until right now oh really like it's it, it is its own game as far as i'm concerned yeah 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 no but uh, you know it, its director was masahiro ueno and he basically said yeah this this was basically you know my reimagining our reimagining of the original game and and by the way the original game has now been remade or reimagined like i don't know like 20 times <laughs> um you know most notably as well on the castlevania chronicles for the sharp x sixty-eight thousand. Um, it, it's a game that has been remade, but I would say from the quote-unquote remakes, this is probably the one that diverges the most. You know, it, it doesn't really follow the same template as the other quote-unquote remakes. Um, a few other points. Uh, it was produced by Kazumi Kitwai, uh, who then later on became the CEO of Konami Digital Entertainment. Uh, maybe he was the one that fired Hideo Kojima. <laughs> uh, who knows? Uh, but uh, <laughs> it was co-composed by uh, Masanori Adachi and Taro Kudo. And, you know, this was from the age where Konami did not credit its developers. And, you know, beyond that, the 
you know, work circumstances in Konami at the time from everything I've read were absolutely horrid. So, you know, it's really a testament to how passionate these developers were that we even got good games out of it because these people, you know, these developers were struggling. They were being treated like crap and, you know, they weren't even getting any recognition. I mean, I read an interview with Mishiru Yamane and they weren't even able, like they were not even allowed to show their faces. So if they were interviewed, it was only voice only, uh, you know, if that. So Konami, you know, really clapped down, clamped down on, you know, its developers. So there's a lot of slippage here and there's a lot of, you know, information and history that's kind of fallen by the wayside just because of this, you know, improper, you know, crediting. So, uh, but the soundtrack, you know, we've been able to, you know, find out who were the, the composers. And I would say the soundtrack is some of the best music of all time on the on, on the video game medium, really. Uh, and these guys, they worked on Russian Attack, uh, Contra 3, The Alien Wars, and I'm seeing here they also worked on Tingle's freshly picked rose-colored rupee land. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> pick the odd one out. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's also a few others like Axley, which was a really fantastic shooter on the Super Nintendo, uh, Circle of the Moon, Super Mario RPG, and Shibu Robo. Uh, but what do you guys think about the soundtrack? Uh, what do you think, Ham? I love the soundtrack. It's just that first um, that first moment in the first stage when when the music just starts up. You know, when you first kind of like walk through the gates, there it, it can almost give you goosebumps. And I've always been a fan of um, when developers kind of revisit something. And they did that here with the soundtrack as well, taking a lot of the uh, the tracks from the NES trilogy and kind of re, uh, re redoing them, remastering them for the 16-bit sound. And it all just came out amazingly, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's a very atmospheric soundtrack. You know, the intro, you know, it just feels like this ominous, you know, introduction where you're kind of introduced to this world, you know, of Transylvania. And, you know, it's kind of like you see spiders, you see, you hear bats, you know, and everything. And it just kind of gets you in the mood because it's it's so horror oriented. But then you actually get into the soundtrack itself and it's super inspired by prog rock and jazz. So it's very bass heavy. Like, I, I don't know any other soundtrack on the Super Nintendo that uses you know, the bass samples as well as Super Castlevania 4. Agree. Um, do you think so, Paul? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Those, there are some levels where the bass is so prominent and it works perfectly for the game. You mentioned atmospheric, but it's more than just atmospheric. Like, there are games where it's there's like an atmospheric... Yeah. Sa- thank Exactly. That's exactly where I was going. You know, there are some games where you have an atmospheric sound, but... Once you're done with the game, you're done with the game. You're not humming it to yourself while driving or whatever, right? Not so with with Castlevania 4, right? Like the tunes are melodic, they're catchy while remaining atmospheric. It's an incredible soundtrack. I I have all day for it. Yeah, and and on top of that, I mean, what I when I'm referencing jazz, like some of the tracks like Sunken City, like they sound like like acid jazz or improv jazz like you you could tell that the bass is just like a double bass just playing in the background you know and it's just there's a dedicated track just for bass and again i don't know of any other snes soundtracks that just dedicates itself so much to providing a good bass line 
Um, and, you know, beyond that, I can't mention the arrangements. You know, the arrangements of Bloody Tears, I would say it's one of the best arrangements, you know, out of all, you know, Bloody Tears kind of comes up on every Castlevania game in some sort of form. But I would say the arrangement of Bloody Tears for Super Castlevania 4 is one of the absolute best. Um, because when it finally plays, it's kind of like this buildup, you know, you've made your way through, you know, the whole Transylvanian countryside, you've gone through the sewers, you've gone through the aqueducts, and now you're finally in Dracula's castle, and it just kind of like has this lead into it, and then it goes, and the hair stand on your end when you start hearing those melodies of bloody tears and you're like i'm ready to fucking take this on you know <laughs> like dracula i'm coming for you um do you guys feel that because it perfectly captures that you know like let's go get it you know atmosphere yeah well absolutely i think it's one of those soundtracks that it gets you it puts you in the right frame of mind it gets you in the in the mood for like what the task is i mean everyone knows that when you play castlevania you're going after dracula um, but there's the soundtrack. I think not only does it, yeah, it gets you in the mood, like I said, but it it also makes you. It also part tells the story. So the way that you uh, even get to the castle to begin with, but then as you make your way through the castle, you really feel like each stage is building up to something towards the end. I think it's it's the the arrangements yes. are absolutely fantastic but it, i think there's one called chandelier which just really kind of it's not something you're going to hum afterwards but it really makes you feel like you're in that place you're in that you're in that stage you are experiencing that far more than just here's some music and here's some things to 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 attack and for example i mean every song fits the level to a T. So let's talk about Dripstone Cave, which is level three. You know, that's yeah. kind of like underwater caverns, like uh, uh, underground caverns. And it's just this very, it's just this, this, this notes playing like, dun, 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 and it just feels very echoey and, and, and moody. And it just feels like you could feel the drips of water falling off the stalactites. Um, so Every every single track, you know, fits its theme perfectly. Um, and let me ask you, Paul, where do you think "Dance of the Holy Man" fits in the top, you know, songs, you know, in Castlevania? Well, I mean, you know the answer, Ozzy. I know why you're asking. I think it's the best. I, it's my it's my favorite 16-bit track. Period. Like Cam was saying right at the beginning of it where the the drawbridge drops and the organ just punches you you get you get goose i got goosebumps when cam was fucking <laughs> describing it right like it's it's amazing and then you play through the level it's the first level so you know like the first level of every game they really have to hit you with yeah. one of their best yeah. tracks right yeah. that's just kind of how it is and you can save the experimental stuff for later when they've already got you hooked but it's it's such a melodic track and man it's it's awesome what can i say right <laughs> it's almost like you know level one one with super mario brothers where it's just like you hear the track and you can immediately transport yourself to that level yeah. um and and it fits it perfectly it's a perfect introduction to the level um i also want to mention one of the highlights which is that the final you know showdown with dracula um the track dracula's room it's not like a bombastic track at all it's it's a very haunting track and it's very long and it's almost like a track that's in awe 
of the amazing preternatural power of Dracula. Um, so it's a game that really does away with a lot of conventions. It really sigs when you're thinking it's gonna sag. Um, and for that, I really appreciate it because it's one of the most experimental soundtracks, you know, I would say ever. Um, would you agree with that, Cam? Yeah. Hey, I think you've, you've said it all. Um, <laughs> all <right. laughs> I think I've beaten it to the ground. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, as you were, you were talking about the, uh, you know, the final battle there, I was like playing it in my head, basically, you know, and then like right up to the point where you, you, you kill Dracula and it does that, you know, that little melody and then like the long note at the end as he kind of like, you know, like melts away in the, in the sunshine. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It, uh, it's, it's goosebumps once again. And let me say, I mean, I, I listened to the soundtrack before playing the game, and that's a testament to how great the soundtrack is. And when I listened to it, I said, I had to play this ASAP. So even if you do not have access to any of the many ways in which you can play Castlevania 4 nowadays, um, definitely go to YouTube and listen to the soundtrack because it's very much a listenable soundtrack outside of the game. You know, it's it's you can say that with a f- with you know few soundtracks from the eight bit and sixteen bit era, but definitely this one is one of the ones that you can absolutely listen to outside of the game. Um, let's talk about some of the gameplay refinements. So one of the things that I mentioned is that Simon is a lot more nimble, but beyond that, there's another change, which is that before you could only whip one way, but now you can whip in eight directions, and you can also kind of rotate your whip and have it go limp, which is kind of really ridiculous it looks really 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 ridiculous guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but it's very useful you know and it kind of makes for a much easier game this is actually i dare say i mean i know jeff you said that it was super hard and it's it's really really freaking hard but but by castlevania standards it's one of the easier games uh, and a big part of that is because you can swing in eight directions and you can have the you know whip just kind of block projectiles etc uh, so, Paul, how do you feel about the eight, you know, whip, you know, mechanic, eight direction mechanic? I wish that they had kept it for every other <laughs> Castlevania game. I know, right? right? Like when I play when I play Rondo of Blood, I mean, obviously there are things that I prefer about Rondo of Blood versus Castlevania Four, and vice versa. One thing I wish they had kept in in Rondo of Blood was the eight way whip. Like you're saying that it makes the game easier, and and absolutely it does. But that the just needs better design. Hard. Yeah, and and the game, like, the difficulty is actually perfect, right? Like, I remember playing Castlevania 3 as a kid, and obviously as a kid, I had infinite free time, right? Yeah. So I was able to get through Castlevania 3 eventually, and it was a lot of fun. Playing Castlevania 3 now, it's like, oh my lord, this, like, it's hard, right? Playing Castlevania 4, on the other hand, still difficult, but it's it's just right. Like, I can sit down... It wasn't even that long ago. I sat down. I think it was like, I don't know, 1030 or something on a on a Friday night. And my wife had gone to bed. I didn't really I, I didn't really want to go to bed yet. I, so I started playing Castlevania four and I played through it completely. It was like 230 in the morning when I finished. It's hard, but it's doable and it's fun. And that like the whip mechanic really helps with that. Like, especially for stuff like the flying, you know, the Medusa heads, absolutely. birds that attack absolutely. you from above, oh, like man, all that, yeah. all that stuff that hits you from above that used to be so frustrating, yep. you know, now you got a whip, you can deal with it. Yeah. It's not a game that feels cheap, you know, and, and that's yeah. not something that you can say for Castlevania three, for example, I, I love Castlevania three. I have all the time in the world for Castlevania three, but man, 
that game can be brutal at times and unfairly yeah. so at times. Like some of the sections on the gears and stuff with the Medusa heads, they're just freaking brutal. Uh, but this game, as you say, Paul, like it, it's not the first time and it won't be the last time that I say, let me just throw on Castlevania 4 and just kind of like run through the first few levels. And then I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> I've just spent like the last, you know, hour playing Castlevania 4. That's um, exactly what happens. Yeah, yeah, because it's a very accessible game. I would say probably from this era, it's one of the more accessible games. We'll talk about Castlevania Bloodlines. I think that one is probably even more accessible. But I would say Castlevania 4, you know, especially amongst these three games, I think it's one of the more accessible games. Um, what do you think, Cam? Here's here's what what I feel. With the eight-directional eight whip, it did cut down the difficulty a bit. But what we lost in difficulty, we gained in fun factor. And of course, that's a huge part of playing any game. If you're not having fun, you're not going to play the game. You guys mentioned the enemies, like birds that come from above, that the whip made a lot easier to kill. How about enemies that come from below? Like, in the older Castlevania games, good luck trying to kill something that's coming from beneath you, right? Yeah. yeah. At least if it's coming from above, you could jump and whip and, you know, kind of time it. If it's coming from below, just kind of grit your teeth because you're going to take that hit, most likely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So... Let me just move on from this. Um, just a real... Oh, oh, could I just quickly add something? I completely agree on the whip. I mean, I just recently, like the last week preparing for this, I played through all, all of the games. And Castlevania 4, I, I got to Dracula the fastest out of all of them. Um, but the one thing that I love about Dracula, uh, Castlevania 4 is the fact that you can moonwalk up the stairs. That says it all. Oh, yeah. Surely. I love it. It's perfect. It's perfect. I can't believe uh, that didn't get mentioned till now. <laughs> uh, I'm slacking. I'm slacking. Um, but with that with that fact out of the way, uh, another fun fact is that Factor 5, who later went on to do the Rogue Squadron games, um, and they used to do the Super Turrican yeah. games, if you guys ever played that. Um, yeah. They actually recreated Super Castlevania 4 on the Sega Genesis, and they replicated some of the Mode 7 effects. And they pitched the port to Konami. It was ultimately turned down. But what they ended up doing is they got the uh, you know go ahead to do Contra Three: The Alien Wars on Game Boy, and that's a really good port. I you know probably not the best way to play Contra Three now, you know. But if you were a kid back in the day and you only had access to a Game Boy, you could have done worse. Um, Super Castlevania Four, when it was released, was reviewed very well. You know, the Nintendo Power gave it a four point three seven five out of five. <laughs> I don't know how you come up with that decimal. <laughs> you know, but I'm just gonna trust them. Um, but it really, you know, it's weird because it's considered one of the best entries in the series. But funnily enough, we just haven't seen games like it in the Castlevania series anymore. Like. After this, we had Rondo of Blood, which was quite different. It was more along the lines of the NES games and Bloodlines, which kind of did its own thing. And then from that, you know, kind of like the traditional Castlevanias kind of fell by the wayside with the Metroidvanias that would follow after Symphony of the Night. So even though it's considered one of the best games, it's not a game that really left a mark on the Castlevania series itself. So Yeah, that's a really good what way do you think of putting about it. That, I never really thought of it like that. It's... It's, it's obviously it's a and rightly so it's much celebrated as yeah one of the best games on the system therefore one of the best Castlevanias uh, Konami produced. Um, I think that it's just a bit maybe maybe the eight the eight direction whip maybe that they decided like this just makes it a bit too easy. We want to make sure that it's going to remain like a difficult game for people to play. 
Uh, all I can imagine is once Symphony of the Night hit the numbers that it hit on the Saturn and on the PlayStation, that that was it. And they were never going to return to like what Car Super Castlevania, what like legacy it gave. Because if you think about the other games, they're on different consoles, um, apart from Dracula X, which was a very yeah very different. <laughs> but but you can imagine once Symphony of the Night, once that did what it did, Konami, and we see Konami even more today how they are with their franchises. They just kind of put all their chips on something that makes money. Yeah, well, and someday we'll get to it, but you know, there were two lines of evolution or revolution with respect to Castlevania. So the the, the logical step that would follow Super Castlevania would have been the Nintendo 64 Castlevania games, which were 3D, not Symphony of the Night. Symphony mm. was just kind of like a small side project that was not supposed to do very well. True. Uh, because, you know, apparently no one cared about 2D games. Um, but I think the fact that Konami wanted to move on to the 3D era, that's probably as big a reason as any why Castlevania Fortress did not have staying power in terms of its influence. Um, and the fact that, you know, the Symphony team just decided to go a different way. Uh, but what do you think, Paul? I think that everybody just thought the linearity was old fashioned. You know, that's that was the old way of playing games and Symphony was the new one. And so even if Castlevania 4 has value long term because it's a great game, which it is, it's still in an old fashioned mode. And I think that everybody was trying to get away from that. It's funny because it was supposed to have it was supposed to have branching paths. And we would see this with Rondo Blood and um and yeah, that's about it. I mean there are a few branching paths in, in bloodlines, but it's not as noticeable as Rondo Blood. Uh, but they just couldn't do it, you know, because of time. And I totally understand that since it was a launch title. Uh, but Castlevania 4 still, you know, retains kind of its standing, I would say, top five, you know, in terms of Castlevania games. Would you say so, Paul? Uh, for me, it's like top two. Yeah, I mean, it's basically between this and Symphony in many ways. Yeah, okay. Do you think so? <laughs> <laughs> Sym- Symphony is top five for me. Symphony is not like... I know everybody talks about Symphony and it's and it's revered. I really enjoyed it, but you know, if, what can I say, right? Like for me, I would like like I would imagine for many people, it also has to do with the time that I played it and the circumstances. Absolutely, yeah. And so you were more familiar me, with Castlevania by the time the Symphony came out. Yeah, you know, for whereas me, a like, lot of others discovered Castlevania through Symphony. Yeah, like one and one a is rondo and castlevania 4 that that's that's how i look at it and symphony is right up there too but castlevania 4 is really you know that's that's a special one i guess cam where would you rank castlevania 4 top three for sure i mean i hate doing these like ranked lists i'm I'm never (laughs) i've never been good at doing that for my myself um because you know i'll look back at it and say kind of hum and haw right um but definitely top three so we'll, yeah. we'll leave it at that. <laughs> what about you, Jeff? Um, uh, hmm. <laughs> That's called hemming and hawing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's for me uh, very difficult as well to make those lists. Uh, each game has their own merits, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but if you're gonna yeah. make a list, definitely, definitely in the top ten. Yeah, yeah. I would say top four, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> just to not say top five. Um, one thing before we take a break, um, how awesome is the North American cover to Castlevania 4? Nice. Yeah, nice, so they nailed it. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah, 
It was done by Tom Dubois, and I would say it's one of the few instances where the North American cover is actually better than the Japanese cover. Um, yeah. I don't know if you recall the Japanese cover, but compared to the North American covers that has like Simon whipping, you know, and hanging on to, which, you know, from a, a Newtonian gravitational physics point of view just does not make any sense. But, you know, let's avoid it discussing that because it just looks cool. Um, and you have Medusas, <laughs> you have uh, Hydras. It's just mind-blowing. Um, so one of the best, I would say, covers from the North American. Yeah. Um, and, North American. And the, and the uh, Super Famicom, SNES. you've got like a really interesting stained glass window on the, on the reverse. Um, yeah. But because they, yeah. most Super Famicom is uh, portrait, they, they switch to landscape. Again, it was an early release, yeah. so I don't think they were really short to do with it. But they put a lot of the focus on Simon, and it was—I don't know—like they were clearly not. I don't think they were quite sure where they wanted to go into the how to sell it because Super Famicom is all about selling the game through the box art. Yeah, and it looks a lot cheaper. It does, you know. Funnily enough, I—I I, I never think you know that's the case with you know Famicom releases and Japanese box art. But with this one, I would say that the box art just does not look as good um, as it should. So um, with that out of the way, let's just take a quick break. Uh, we're done with Castlevania 4. We're going to move on to Rondo Blood after the jump. So let's just take a break and we'll be back. Welcome back, everyone. And right now we're going to talk about a game that's kind of mythical, legendary. You know, for a lot of gamers, this was kind of a holy grail that they were never able to play. But it was kind of seen as the pinnacle of Castlevania. And that's because it came out exclusively in Japan, exclusively for the PC Engine. And it wasn't released on the TurboGrafx-16, which was the US counterpart. So, of course, we're talking about... Akumaju Dracula Rondo of Blood. Um, and this game is seen as one of the best Castlevania games ever. It was released on October 1993 and uh, it was released for the PC Engine CD. Um, the PC Engine, as you guys may know from listening to some of the other episodes, was much you know bigger in Japan than it was here in the United States. In the United States, and the West, it was pretty much just people like Paul that, you know, stumbled upon the Turbo graphics and, you know, they were, <laughs> you know, forced to play that. Um, but in, <laughs> in Japan, you know, the PC engine was pretty big. Um, but, you know, Run Duel Blood, it's a game that came to the ears and minds of gamers through word of mouth. Like everyone back in the mid 90s heard that there was this castlevania game that was not released in japan that was supposedly super awesome that had like full-blown animation had fantastic music and everyone was just like we need to get a hold of this game so with that paul i want to ask you how did you first hear of rondo blood 
And what did you think of, you know, the whole, you know, discussion about the game at the time? It was it was almost certainly through a magazine, right? Like I don't think it would have been through through a friend. We all kind of read EGM and Game Pro and and so on and so forth. So in all likelihood, it was probably EGM is where I'd first heard about it. And from there, you know, there's no internet, there's no YouTube. All you see is screenshots and the flowery words of the people writing about the game and how it's incredible and you'll never see it in the U.S. and so on and so forth. And it was like you said, it was mythical, right? So that's how I first heard about it. I'm pretty sure. Do you feel like the hype, you know, had a lot to do with the impression that gamers have of Rondo Blood? Sure, of course. But that's part and parcel with the whole package, right? Yeah. I eventually, I eventually got it, right? Like I had, I had a Turbo Duo, and I saved up, you know, allowance and all that kind of stuff because I was still too young to to be working. And but I saved up, and I eventually did get it. You imported and it. It was what's that? You imported it. Yeah, yeah. There were you know there were websites <laughs> websites there were mail in services right like that were yeah. advertised in Game Pro and EGM. And they sold import games. And so I eventually did pick it up. And like when I got it, it was like, dude, it was like holding a legend. You know what I mean? Like this thing that. And so when you when you first put the disc in and you boot it up and you hear the Red Book audio, you hear the the voices, the singing, like actual people singing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that 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 requiem theme that plays in the menu screen. Exactly, um, it's absolutely amazing. And when you play it, you know it has that like upbeat, catchy pop music. You know that it's not like anything that you had heard in Castlevania before. And I know we just said that with Castlevania Four, but really, you know, Rondo of Blood just did something entirely different with its music. Like it's it's also another game that just kind of broke the mold on Castlevania. It didn't really follow what was pre-established there. Um, but Paul, when you actually got around to playing it, you know, how did your impression compare with your expectations of it? It met them. Yeah. You think so? Yeah, no, there's there's no doubt about it. Look, the it's a good Castlevania game, right? Like it's not it's not punitively difficult. It's got a lot of action. The music is upbeat. You know, the boss fights are spectacular. Even just like some of the regular enemies on the levels, like the very first level, those giant golems that you fight. Yeah. You yeah. know, graphically very impressive. Yeah. No, I was I was pretty happy with it. Still am. Yeah, it was kind of, uh, you know, along the same lines of other games like Radiant Silver Gun, you know, that were just hallowed, you know, games that, you know, gamers spoke about in hushed tones. Like, you know, if, if you have this, like you're in, you know, you, you have what it takes. Um, and so because <laughs> of that, I think that, you know, a lot of gamers missed out on this game. You know, a lot of gamers really never got to experience Rondo Blood. And in fact, you know, if you were not emulating games, you know, the only real way that you were able to play you know, Rondo of Blood without importing it was in the 2007 uh, Castlevania Dracula X Chronicles on the PSP. Um, because before that, you just did not really have the opportunity because, you know, part of the issue with Castlevania, which I think you've hinted at, uh, Paul, is that because it was so mythical, the game was and remains extremely expensive. It's it's one of the more expensive games on on any system. Uh, I mean, we're not talking you know like little Samsung expensive, but you know we're certainly talking about over two hundred dollars. 
you know, I, I haven't checked the market recently. Cam, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Um, but it's it's expensive. It's not cheap. Um, last time I, I checked, it could be had for about 180 US dollars. Um, I, I, I got lucky. I picked it up from a friend. <laughs> lucky, in quotes. Um, <laughs> a, few, a few years ago, uh, maybe I think it was three years ago for 160 us i know great what a bargain right yeah <laughs> um it was still cheaper than anything i could find so whatever right he, he, he had to make his money back obviously yeah and and how do you feel about the game when you finally played it because i know that you only you know it was your experience with castlevania is a lot more recent yeah um, so how do you feel about it when you actually played it? it it would have been the last of the uh the games we're talking about today that i had actually played just because of all the reasons you mentioned um the exclusivity of it um it, it this is one of those games where you read about it and everybody tells you how great it is it can lead to disappointment where you kind of build something up in your head um th- th- i'm raising my hand over here so <laughs> <laughs> you guys can't see me but i am <laughs> that thankfully that didn't happen with me I, I for me it did live up to the hype right you know right from the get-go you mentioned you know the music and you know kind of the uh once you hit start new game and you get like a little cutscene of, uh, of Richter, you know, whipping, um, I think he's whipping pots or something, right. Just kind of like warming up <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah. those pots. <laughs> it's like t- taking a cue from link. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, like the music, the music is in a class of its own simply because it's, it's the first Castlevania with uh, red book audio. Right. Um, it had some great original tracks, but then some phenomenal red arrangements, book yeah. remixes, yeah, arrangements of of tracks that we already loved. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Jeff, did you hear um, of Rondo of Blood back in the day in the UK gaming scene, um, or how did you first come to find yeah, out? Yeah, in, in the UK, I think you had to be really you had your finger on the pulse if you were hearing about PC Engine or Turbo Graphics, uh, things like Neo Geo. They were for really lucky people who could either source it from Japan, the US, or just had very rich parents or they were making money of their own. Um, (laughs) Assholes. The the funny thing with Rondo of Blood is for me, the hype was huge and it was all because of the game we're trying not to mention and the very beginning of that game where you play as Richter. So like you you, you get that scene and there's this incredible music incredible graphics uh even 2d and on the original version you get that incredible dialogue between richter and dracula yeah (laughs) and it built up this legend of this prequel to this game that that is all over the world and this game that only few people got to play and it just kind of created this sense of like i this game must be incredible if sim if that game i was about to mention is this good this must be equally as good. So already the hype and the build-up is and, so and huge how? for this game. I know what you mean when like there's only one way you can go when the hype is that big, and we see it today with the hype that people build up about games that they haven't that they've yet to play. There was it's a very big risk that it would only go one way when you play it. But for me, Rondo of Blood, I first played it on the Dracula X Chronicles. So I played that PSP, re, I guess it, you can call it a re-release, and it's the remake. The one with the polygonal graphics, or do you actually unlock the... I mean, you had to unlock 
you know, the exactly the, the classic one, you know, by playing the one with the polygonal graphics, which is unfortunate because I freaking hate 2.5D games and with a passion, um, particularly when they are originally so well designed yeah. and so beautiful yeah. as Rondo of Blood. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very bizarre, yeah, that was a very bizarre mechanic. You had to unlock the games within the game. Um, but as soon as you unlock Rondo of Blood, yeah. the original PC engine, all you do is play that version. So it was really good when... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's no reason when, to play the other the, one. When the collection came up on the PlayStation Network, they only gave you the original version because, like, yeah, you don't want to play the 2.5 stuff. Nobody wants to play that. Yeah, they they gave you the original version, but it was the port of the PSP yeah. Dracula X. Yeah, it was a bit kind of annoying. Um, I wish they would have just done it natively, but you exactly. know, this is Konami we're talking about. Yep. You can't ask for everything with them. If you get even like twenty percent of exactly. what you want, you should be thankful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I must imagine that a lot of players were actually introduced to Rondo Blood through Symphony um, because you had this introduction, you know, this lead and prologue. And it just kind of sets mm-hmm. up this mythical, you know, predecessor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, I actually, it, it wasn't that the case for me because I didn't play Symphony until much later. And I already knew of Rondo Blood through the magazines because even in the early 2000s, it was still being discussed as one of the best, you know, Castlevania games out there. So I always had it in a very, very high pedestal. And I thought, you know, this is going to be the end all be all of Castlevania games. And so I actually didn't get to play it until many, many years later, actually. It was actually like 2017 that I actually got to play Rondo of Blood. And like you, Jeff, it was on the Dracula X Chronicles. And maybe it was the fact that I played the 2.5D version first, or maybe it was the fact that Super Castlevania 4 was already out there and I loved it, or that I had already played Bloodlines. But I just felt like the game was disappointing to me. And let me just state my reasons for that I'm, i don't think drondo blood is a bad game it's a very good game i just think okay, that okay okay keep going <laughs> i just think that it's a very <laughs> it's it's a very overhyped game and and we can agree with that it's I, i'm not gonna say it's overrated but it's certainly overhyped um and the thing is it's that it felt like a step back from castlevania 4 as you said paul you don't have the eight directional whip um you also have Richter moving a lot slower and beyond that the game felt a lot darker I didn't care as much for the environments but I think for me and your mileage may vary on this I really did not take to the branching paths and and I know that for most people this is the most exciting part of Rondo of Blood but you know just to explain you know with Rondo of Blood depending upon which routes you take you know, you could play a whole different game. You know, you could go down an entirely different path. You could be in Dracula's castle within a few levels, or you can take the long way around. Um, and that, to many, is what makes the game so replayable. I personally prefer the more linear experiences. If you're going to give me a Castlevania that's non-linear, give me the Metroidvania mold. Uh, whereas with Rondo, I felt like it was, you know, it, it had those branching paths. It had that non-linearity but not in the way I like. And on top of that, in order to get the nonlinearity, you know, you had to do things like test out whether falling through this particular pit, you know, was going to lead you down a different path. And I felt like that kind of trial and error was just, to me, it just felt like poor design, you know. But again, you know, your mileage may vary with respect to that, where finding the secrets to go down a different path might be the fun of it. So... With that out of the way and being a complete villain right now, um, I kick it back to you, Paul, to respond to that and eviscerate <laughs> me. 
<laughs> Ozzy, imagine you're 14 years old or 15 years old and you've saved up a whole ton of money and you get a new Castlevania game and you have the option. You're, you're designing this game and you have the option of a game that provides you with branching paths, secrets you can find, an extra character at the end, or a game where you start from point A and finish at point B. Now, you tell me which one you think gives you more value. Listen, Paul, I'm, I'm all in with you. I, I totally, totally, you know, have my sentiments there with you. And if I had played this when I was 14, and if I had played this not as an adult that, you know, has more limited time, I would have totally been all over this. And I think that's the reason why I want to mention it, because I think this is a game that, you know, your impression of it is very contingent, you know, on how you approached it what your background is with respect to the game in Castlevania and the station in your life in which you're playing it. Um, yeah. I, I, I think this game more than most, to be honest. Um, and I still think that it's a very good game. It's just to me, I wouldn't put it, for example, in the top five of my Castlevania games. Now that's, you know, we're getting into a digression there, but I, I just... Yeah, I mean, we're just going to fire you from the show. It's cool. It's fine. So that's why I'm <laughs> making my last stand here. Um, but, you know, let's move on from that and let's just talk about, you know, the game was directed by Toru Hagihara, who actually was a co-director of Symphony. Now, you know, a lot of people identify Symphony with Koji Igarashi, and that's very fine and well, but people forget that it wasn't just Igarashi that did Symphony. You know, actually, when Koji Igarashi got to it, the game was almost like halfway done. Um, of course, he added like a lot of it, you know, you know, to the game, a lot of his style to the game. But Toru Hagihara was actually the one that kind of laid the groundwork for Symphony. Um, Igarashi, like Keiji Inafune, he was just very good at, you know, kind of storing the franchise and m- becoming the face of the franchise. But let's not forget, you know, Hagihara and his contributions to the Castlevania series. Um the composers let's talk about the soundtrack a little bit because the soundtrack i think is probably top three castlevania soundtracks um it was composed by keizo nakamura who wrote most of the tracks it was composed also by motoaki furukawa who was the leader of the konami kukeha club which was konami's uh, sound division and by mikio saito who arranged the classic tracks like vampire killer bloody tears and beginning so like castlevania 4 uh rondo of blood had renditions of uh, the classic Castlevania tracks, and it had the very same ones that showed up on Castlevania 4. Now, whether you prefer one or the other, it depends on, you know, whether you prefer the more sample-based uh, sound of the SNES, or if you prefer the more Red Book audio sound of the PC Engine. Um, and we can really, we can't understate how important Red Book audio was to Rondo Blood. Because it made for a very different soundtrack from the early Castlevania soundtracks. It was really more poppy. It was upbeat. It, it was less Baroque and Gothic, which, you know, was the case very much after this game came out. And in some sense, before the game came out. Um, I would say some songs can even be danced to, to be honest. And one of the things that the composers were really excited about was the fact that they could actually use real guitars for the soundtrack. So they implemented a lot of guitar work into the soundtrack itself. So... Uh, let me ask you, Cam, how does the soundtrack, in your view, compare to the other 16-bit Castlevanians? It's it's almost, you can't really compare them. I think just because the Rondo had that advantage of being on a CD. Um, having said that, though, there's some phenomenal tracks in Castlevania 4. 
and uh, and Bloodlines that are right up there in terms of quality, right? But still, like Rondo's Rondo's soundtrack is just in a league of its own. I I, I don't I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Um, Vampire Killer, just the rendition, the uh, the arrangement in in Rondo is just phenomenal. Um, it's one of the tracks I'm actually not too crazy about in uh, Castlevania Four, the Vampire Killer arrangement. I, I, I don't. Yeah, it's I not. It's not the best one. I, yeah, I don't know what it is about it. It's kind of no. intangible, but it's just not. It doesn't feel my, right. It doesn't yeah, feel right. Yeah, it just doesn't yeah. feel right there. Yeah. Here, the uh, the arrangement, it, it translated very well to uh, Red Book Audio. Um, there's not there's not a stage in that game I can think of that the music doesn't stand out to me like wow <laughs> yeah and, and i don't think there yeah. are i don't think there are that many castlevania games that have as many memorable songs that haven't shown up anywhere else in any other castlevania songs um because there's just a, a, a ton of memorable castlevania you know songs you know in this one but they just you know unlike bloody tears unlike vampire killer they just haven't appeared elsewhere well, Jeff, it's, what do you think about the soundtrack? It is really difficult to like even compare them to the other Castlevanias. Like Cam said, I think that the the the, tr- the difficulty is is that Konami at that time were just exceptional at pro- at producing music, um, and so it's like it's it's not as if like there's one bad or one good or any, or anything like that. I think yeah, the benefit of being on CD using instruments definitely. I feel that when I was recently replaying Rondo. Um, it just feels far more modern. It feels far more. I mean, Rondo is has an is an exceptional soundtrack, and I can easily listen to it whilst I'm whilst I'm working or whilst I'm on you know traveling. It's it's really good music to listen to. But when it when you're talking about music that really fits with the game, I think Super is just ahead of it in terms of how it how it does fit. But from a, from a yeah. just a pure music side, Rondo is it's yeah it's it's, it's exceptional. I agree with that. And I'm glad to I'm glad to get that counter argument because you know the composer um, I think it was uh, Keiso Nakamura you know he he basically said that he was trying to do something very different with the soundtrack but he was very worried about you know not honoring the Castlevania sound and I think there's something to be said about that because I do think that out of all the soundtracks I think the Rondo Blood soundtrack is the one that sounds the least Castlevania like. And I don't know if you guys agree with that, but it, it doesn't mean it's bad. It's, it's it's absolutely excellent, but it just you know does not sound like any other Castlevania soundtrack. I think. Yeah. Um, no, that's that sounds about right. And but it's like you said, it doesn't mean it's bad, right? It just means that it's it's different. It doesn't feel like the usual Castlevania game. But <laughs> goddamn, dude, it's it's really hype. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's great. And and it's one of uh I mean it's only like forty minutes long, so it's not as long as, as Castlevania Four. Castlevania Four runs like about sixty eight minutes or so. Um, so there's a little bit less material to work with uh, on this one. But you know each track stands out because they each feel you know individual. You know they each feel like individual tracks. They don't really you know feel like they're just copy pasting from something else. Yeah, um, and let me ask you something else. Um, one of the big things about this game that was because of its expanded storage space, it was actually <laughs> you know able to provide animation um, on the on the game. And so, how do you feel about the anime cutscenes um, and the anime intro, Jeff? I My hear name is Richter. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's it's so funny because the the intro with the German is really good, but then with the English dub, it it's yeah yeah it, yeah yeah yeah. It's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, the animation the animation is decent. I think I haven't played a lot of PT Engine, <laughs> and I'll and I'll be honest there. Um, I'm really it's looking forward to the mini because I think that's going to open up a whole new world for me. But if this is like as good as the animation got with the PC engine, then it's, it's yeah, maybe I'm being too critical because we're not talking about late nineties here. It's quite, still quite early nineties. Um, it's, it is quite basic, but it's great to see the anime influence. Uh, I'm a massive, massive fan of anime. I don't think, I don't think you can love or admire Japan as much as I do without also loving anime. It goes hand in hand. Um, but yeah, it's rewatching it recently. It did, it did make me chuckle. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the animation is a little bit rough, but you know, for the early '90s, just the fact that you got animation like this was just mind blowing. I I think that you know the first few screens I saw from Rondo of Blood was the animation, and I was just like, if you had animation in any of your games, the game could have been absolute yeah. shit. That I would have still at least gotten some kick out of it. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that was your case, Paul. Oh yeah, having animation in games, it any game that was a six automatically became like a seven and a half because you had these cutscenes. You could endure a lot more in order to get to a new level and see a new cutscene. But with that said, Rondo's animation, yeah, not so great. Like, you know, it's it's subpar compared to its PC engine contemporaries. Yeah, yeah. It's not something like um what's uh what's the other one that um we've been talking about recently it's not that east have any animation on the pc engine yeah east had east had better animation you know it had big full screen you know scenes it had like it had sections where you know like it's rudimentary right it's not 60 frames per second anime but it still had parts that were actually animated instead of like a static image moving across the screen to create the illusion of animation so east had it uh, Cosmic Fantasy series had really good animation. The Valis, like Valis Four, Valis like is the one that cartoon. I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, Valis, yeah, was Valis Four is like great. a cartoon, yeah. man. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah, um, and I, I guess you know, for me, the animation is kind of a mission statement for you know the developers because, as, as Jeff mentioned, there's a very strong anime influence, you know, for this for this game. I mean, before this, Castlevania took its influences and, and homages from you know, universal movie monsters and gothic uh, art and, you know, particularly like very, you know, dark fantasy type, you know, caricatures or art. Uh, But with this one, they really took, you know, the Japanese, um, you know, aesthetic, you know, very much to heart. And I think a big part of the reason for that is because this was just supposed to be a Japanese exclusive. And so they were just able to really cater to the Japanese audience. And I think that's why you see, a game that very much looks like a 90s anime. Do you think so, Cam? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. You're going to cater to your audience, right? Um, yeah. I just wanted to uh, to just kind of touch base on one thing in regards to, you know, the animation or, or you know, lack thereof. Um, you got to consider we're, t- we're using hardware that was released before the Super Nintendo, right? So, I mean, the, the developers have limitations, right? And I, I know, yes, you're, you're playing off a CD, which obviously has a lot more storage and you, you have a lot more flexibility there. But, you know, at, at the end of the day... You're still working with was, the same architecture. Yeah, yeah, it's, it was it was an 8-bit uh, main processor you're working with. So 
you got to take all these things into consideration, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, let's go on a little bit more to the story. You know, you play as Richter Belmont. Uh, this is the 17th century we're talking about. Of course, Dracula is resurrected again, you know, big surprise. Um, <laughs> you know, Richter has the headband. He just looks like the epitome of 1990s anime cool. Um, and you even see it in the box art. The box art is freaking amazing. You know, he's holding the whip, you know, and he's just like giving like a fist bump, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, in the air. Um, it just looks amazing. Um, but the game is also one of the first, well, not the first because Castlevania 3 did it, but it has a, a separate character and that's Maria Renard. Uh, she would show up in Symphony. And I know we're talking about Symphony, but that's because they're kind of like a duology. Uh, but Maria, you know, you rescue her and she becomes a playable character. Uh, and what essentially it does, it's basically like an easy mode for the game. She uses dubs in order to uh, battle. And it really just makes the game a whole lot easier because it just kind of like homes on enemy enemies, etc. And apparently... Adding her created a ton of nightmares for the development team, so they said that they wanted to kill her. Um, and they also <laughs> wanted to give her fishnet thighs, a whip, and a mask. So what would have been if that had been the case? Instead, what we have is <laughs> you know, a young girl, probably about 80 years old, that plays with doves. But you know, in Symphony, we actually got the more adult version that I don't know if she had fishnet thighs, but I could probably see it if she did. Um, <laughs> but Cam, what do you think of the addition of Maria? Did you ever play as her when you played uh, Rondo? Yes, and I, I have to disagree a bit. I didn't find using her easier. I found using her harder. Oh, really? Um, I did. Her double jump obviously made things like platforming much easier, of course. Um, but she gets hit twice and she's dead. Yeah, like she's she much weaker. Yeah, absolutely no defense, right? I mean, they, obviously they had to balance it out somewhere, but yeah, I I couldn't get very far playing her. Um, to me, she's a bit of a novelty more yep. than anything. Um, you know, sprinkle in a little bit of variety, um, but with all the uh, difficulty during the development phase, I I don't know if it was warranted. Yeah, yeah, and and that's uh you know one of the reasons I think why. Dracula X, when, I was, when it was released for the Super Nintendo, it just didn't include Maria at all because it probably gave them a ton of nightmares as well. So they just said, well, let's just cut her because it doesn't add enough. But It makes sense. Do you feel that way, Paul? Because I personally really like the inclusion of Maria and I like playing as Maria. Um, but I think it doesn't let me know hurt. What you think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're adding another character. So, you know, you're not really subtracting anything by having her in there. I didn't really... You know, it was it was nice to have something a little bit extra, but beyond that, she wasn't kind of like my primary choice to play the game. Like, I agree with Cam in that she felt like a little bit of a novelty. Um, although, although even if she was squishy, she, I found she did make the game easier. Like, like you had suggested, Ozzy. Yeah, and and on top of that, you know, if you play as her, you get like a completely different ending. And it, yeah. it's funny because her the tone of playing as her is very lighthearted. It becomes kind of like a kid's show. So at the end, you know, the ending is just like her playing with animals and stuff like that. And it's really, really cute. Um, yeah. So Maria is kind of like the shibi version of Rondo Blood. Um, but what do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I've yet to actually uh, play with her. Sounds a bit weird. I should... Can you edit that bit out? No, we're leaving that one in, buddy. <laughs> um, I've yet to play as her character. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's all there is to it. <laughs> um, let's just talk a little bit about the design. Uh, we said that you know it was only released in Japan, and one of the things that I noticed when I was looking up some of the interviews from back in the day is that because the game was not going to be released in the United States, you didn't have to deal with that pesky U.S. morality, you know, Protestant, you know, censorship. So uh, the developers felt, you know more freedom to actually, you know, create more humanoid monster designs. So they included like naked female bodies. For example, some of the enemies like Camilla and Medusa, they were naked. I don't think you had like nipples or anything, but you could certainly tell, you know, there were boobs. Um, so, you know, the developers had expressed some frustration that they couldn't do that in prior games. So, um, and beyond that, there's just a lot of flair to the game. You know, there are, there's a lot of little details and flourishes to the game. Like even weak enemies have a lot of programming routines. So, you know, developers said, you know, don't kill them right away, you know, just so you can tell what they do. Um, and there are a lot of like different enemy designs. So like, for example, there are kind of like the gorilla, you know, skeleton like enemies. Do you guys remember those like in the village in the beginning? Yeah, yes. those, those are not enemies that we had typically seen in, in Castlevania before. Um, so the game just, you know, had a, an aesthetic design that was not very prevalent. And beyond that, you know, I would call this game very cinematic. You know, it, like the beginning is you riding on the carriage and death comes, you know, and then you have to fight death and then you have to go through the burning village, etc. Um, it just makes for a very cinematic game. Uh, what do you think, Paul? Do you think this is a cinematic game? Well, yeah, it's it's like you said, the the intro with the, you know, coming in on the horse and carriage and stuff looks incredible. It's it really just kind of like, you know, punches you into the game. And it it's like it's what can I say, man? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's just quickly just run through uh, Dracula X. You know, it's just a small digression. Let's just quickly talk about it. Um, Dracula X was the Super Nintendo release um, of Rondo Blood, you know, kind of its own games in, in many ways. It had like redesigned levels, etc. So if you wanted to play Rondo, basically the only way to really do so for a long period of time was just to play Dracula X. And unfortunately, it's not a great substitute because it's not a game that has the same kind of design excellence as Rondo of Blood. Um, I personally played it, and I don't think it's a bad game, but you know, some of the changes that they made to the levels make the game a whole lot harder, and not necessarily in a fair way. Um, and particularly coming from Castlevania 4 that had all this flexibility in how you played, playing you know Dracula X, where you were just a lot more stiff and limited, felt like a step back. But I know, Cam, in your case, you are a little bit of a supporter of Dracula X, so I want to hear from you. I don't know if supporter is the right word, but (laughs) I really don't think it's as bad as a lot of people make it out to be. I think it's almost, not quite, but almost unfairly um, compared to Rondo a lot, whereas they really are a lot different if you play through them. Um, having said that, though, Dracula X is really slow. Yeah. Um, it just feels sluggish. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not a well-performing game. Like, it slows it's, it's, down insanely bad. And it shouldn't, especially at this time in the game. When, you know, it released in 95, they, the developers knew what they were doing with programming for the Super Nintendo. You know, it's, it, it's, it's almost like they flipped Castlevania 4 and Dracula X, where where if Dracula X was the early release, you'd understand some of the, uh, maybe the difficulties they had with it. But, 
you know, this was four years later. They they should have had it all had it down. You know what I'm trying to say? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's exactly right. Like by the time 1995 rolls around, if you have slowdown in your game, it's you know that that really shouldn't be happening. We should know what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it was a, l- a very late Super Nintendo release, so it, it just didn't make any sense. But Jeff, did you play this? Yeah, yeah, I, I picked it up on Super Super Famicom in the last few months. Uh, the most expensive edition I've ever ever made in my video game collection. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you just get completely sold by the artwork, by the box art, the manual, everything about it. It's an it's a gorgeous piece. It's just unfortunate that that's for me. That's where it kind of ends in terms of being an interesting game. I have tried to get through as far as I can, but there's just some there's just some fundamental flaws to some of the level design uh, that make it very frustrating. And I don't classify yeah. myself as like a high level gamer or you know a noob yeah. or and whatever like that. I'm I'm quite an average. I'm averagely good at games. But there's just a few levels. I think even within, I think it's stage two, you have to jump across a falling bridge. And it's one of the most easiest things to die. And it should be like a yeah. simple build up to the castle, to the gate. And it's just like, why Why does this feel like a 50-50 chance that I'm going to make it? Yeah, there's the knockback effect as well. You know, so, yeah. you know, you have to jump from from platform to platform. And when you add that, just kind of design flaws with the knockback effect it just makes for a very unfair game at times so yeah. you didn't really have that issue with rondo but with dracula x not only you had to deal with slowdown but you also have to deal with just a lot of sheep shots that the game takes at you yeah yeah i mean for, yeah. for me this it does without knowing like the the intricacies of, of the development process it does it does have that feeling of a, a, a port of a game and they're not quite sure how to make the most of the hardware that they've now got. So it's a case of, okay, we need to get this over to a console that basically has a bigger install base. It, this is relatively, you know, this is a really high performing game. If we can get this to a, big, a bigger market, we can get this out onto a console that has just more, more, more eyeballs on it. We can make a bit more money out of it. And rather than maybe putting, and this again, I don't know what Konami were doing in 95 or 94, but like it feels like they gave it to like a subdivision to say, can you just make this work on the, on this console rather than what they did with Super, which was would have been in my mind like all like all guns blazing, get as much of our talent on onto it as much, you know as possible. Um, and it just feels a little bit like just one of those ports that you get on many many consoles at the time in the nineties where it just doesn't quite live up to the expectations that the people in the boardroom would have had. Absolutely, absolutely. Any final thoughts on Dracula Expo? You know what? It's its biggest. It's like you said. It, its biggest sin is that it's not Rondo of Blood for the PC Engine. If they had just made an entirely new Castlevania game, or you know, even just called it something else, because it is quite exactly. different. You know, if they had just called it something else, it would probably have been better reviewed and better remembered. But yeah. now it's just remembered as Rondo's sucky brother. Yeah, sucky more expensive. With amazing box art. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, with that uh, downer of a note, um, let's just take a quick (laughs) break um, and we'll be back with the last game, Castlevania Bloodlines.
Alright everyone, so let's close it out with the last game, and certainly not the least, uh, because I have a very, very loving relationship with this game. Um, I think it's actually one of the better Castlevania games that's just completely underrated. Um, following, you know, the tradition of, you know, games like Contra Hardcore and, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Hyperstone Heist, there was an exclusive Castlevania game just for the Genesis Mega Drive. And of course, we're talking about Castlevania Bloodlines. And this was released uh, in 1994, actually, and it was pretty much released simultaneously across all territories. So for once, Europe didn't get shafted. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> hooray, Europe. Hey, Sega, um, we had a great relationship with Sega. Yeah, they had to they had to do it. They, you know, Sega, they knew that Europe was their big market, so they had to keep them happy. <laughs> um, the only thing I want to note about the release date at the release of uh, Castlevania Bloodlines is that the game was made harder in the Western release as tended to be the case with most games that received translations and localizations. Um, Presumably this was because Blockbuster and renting, um, they wanted to make it harder so you couldn't beat it in a weekend. Uh, But what I found funny is that the developers called it the Tabasco version and literally they used that word, the Tabasco (laughs) version of, you know, Vampire Killer Bloodlines, which actually, actually, no, Vampire Killer new generations that's what that was the name in japan um it was the first game in the franchise that did not have the akumaju dracula title and that was because they were really trying to do something very different with this game um it was developed by some of the same developers that worked on rocket knight adventures which is one of those underrated gems of the genesis era uh sparkster batman returns which is a great beat-em-up from konami and Lagrange Point, which uh, we've talked about a few times here, but it's one of those hidden NES you know, games that has a phenomenal, phenomenal soundtrack. Um, but let me ask you, Paul, did you play this game at the time? Did you play Bloodlines at the time? Nah, nah, I didn't. You know, as, as Cam's touched on, if, if you didn't have it and your friends didn't have it, then you didn't play it. And this was one that, that nobody had. And I mean... You know, we're in 1994 now, and the hype for the new generation of systems is starting, so... Yeah, it was the year the Saturn and the PS1 released. Yeah, in Japan, so, like, that's what you're seeing in all the magazines. So, something like Castlevania Bloodlines, unfortunately, we're we're a little bit less less excited about at that time. Okay, and how about you, Cam? Uh, When did you finally get around to playing this one? Um, Sometime between Castlevania 4 and Rondo, probably about four or five years ago and how do you feel like compared to those two because it was kind of sandwiched in between those two titles that are generally seen as pretty great personally it would be my third place out of the three but i mean that's not a bad thing it's still a phenomenal game right it's that's just my my personal preference um i i could be nitpicky and pick it apart but I think most of its faults are the uh, the technical limitations of the, uh, the Sega Genesis hardware itself. Like the game what? Was, like what, um, what are some the, of the faults you the, see? The sound. Oh, like, you think I, the sound? I, yeah. I think that like not not so much the music, but the sound effects. Huh. Um, so first stage, you have that uh, like kind of a sub boss. It's like a wolf. Yeah. That howls. If you didn't see that it's a wolf howling and you just heard it, you would be like, "What in the holy hell?" Is that unbearable <laughs> high pitched sound? You see, I, I actually like, like oh, that. Oh, it's a wolf. Okay, we'll go with that, right? And then in the second stage, um, I think it's the second stage, yeah, where you're um, 
you're, you're kind of whipping platforms. Like the first thing you whip is, um, it's like the head of a giant statue and it like moves and then falls and it goes like, Mow. yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, uh, Dude, that that's, sound that, that's something crashing down. We'll go with but that. That's the, <laughs> that's the Nick Roy sound though. <laughs> yeah because everything was produced with fm synthesis so yeah. everything was done with fm sound <laughs> so you know it's kind of a quirk of the sega genesis mega drive i mean i personally like it you know but your mileage may vary the the fm sound of the genesis is kind of an acquired taste some yeah. people will like it some people will you know listen to it and say this is like nails on a chalkboard yeah. so it, you and know like your, said, your mileage may vary i didn't want to dwell too much on that because it's kind of a moot point, right? It is what it is. Yeah, uh, and Jeff, I know you have little experience with this one. So, what were your first impressions when you played it? Yeah, I mean, just just a bit of, bit of context. I in ninety four, ninety three, I was busy buying like Nintendo only third party magazines. So, I was if it's not on a on a Nintendo, I'm not going to know about it. So that's my that's my excuse. Yeah. That's my excuse for the time. But. But yeah. I, yeah, I basically I recently played it on the Castlevania collections on the on the PS4, and uh, yeah, like the first thing that hits you is this was a Sega game. It looks like a Sega game. Yeah, yeah, it feels very much like a Sega yeah. game. Yeah, and yeah. and and in that that in itself is a great selling point, I think, because I think that there's a lot of there's a there's obviously a lot of love for Nintendo on the retro scene uh, in the in North America. Nintendo was the brand or the company back in the 80s and 90s. Um, obviously being European, I had a master system. I had friends who had mega drives. Like it was very common to, to know people who had game gears. There was no short supply of, of Sega related games here. Um, so I definitely feel like, like this was a great version for people who maybe were always looking over at Nintendo kind of go, why can't we have a cool Gothic vampire game that is just as good as Castlevania. And it, I've played through the first few stages and it, it holds up really well. It obviously, yeah, it sounds like it, it's got the Yamaha uh, sound chip. So like you can hear that, but once you've played a quite a few Genesis or Mega Drive games, you just kind of become attuned to it and you, and you don't notice it. And you kind of start picking up on those little audio cues um, that, that you wouldn't get playing a Nintendo console. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be perfectly honest, I mean, I, I guess I'm the odd man out here because I, I personally find I, I played it again last night and I actually kind of struggle thinking about whether I prefer this to Castlevania 4. And I know that sounds sacrilegious, but um, I just have so much fun playing this game. It, it's a lot faster but, than any other and Castlevania game. And I think game. that's the Sega arcade effect. Like games on the Sega yeah, Mega yeah. Drive? It feels a yeah. much more arcadey yeah. game. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate because beyond the original release, this is kind of like the forgotten, you know, Castlevania game that Konami, until the Castlevania collection, just did not release at all. Um, you know, every other game like Castlevania 4, they got some sort of re-release. But with this one, so many players were not able to experience it just because it was never released elsewhere that it's just now that people are getting it to experience it. So it kind of had kind of like, a different, completely different effect than Rondo Blood, where Rondo Blood, everyone knew about it but hadn't played it. With this one, no one knew about it, and most hadn't even played it. 
Um, and that's really unfortunate because I think it's really a Dark Horse top five Castlevania game. I, I honestly do believe that. And that's because it feels so different. It feels so much faster paced. You can jump in and out of stairs. Um, you can play as two different characters, you know, one being John Morris or Johnny Morris in Japanese, which I much prefer, and Eric Lecard. <laughs> and Eric is kind of like the easy mode version of, you know, the, the game. Uh, and you have this spear that just has a farther reach, etc. But it just makes for a very fast-playing game. Um, it has, like, a lot of cool effects. Like, we're talking about Castlevania Four having Mode 7. You know, this game, some of the rotational effects and some of, like, the... You know, it's very much like Shinobi 3 that you could see things happening in the background that would later come to the foreground. Um, and that's something that, you know, this game does very well. Um, there's actually a boss that just plays on this completely rotating platform and it just fucks with your mind. You know, there's oh, no other yeah, way yeah, to, yeah. there's just no other way to put it. Um, and it, it just does so many things that are different from the traditional Castlevania game. And the fact that not only can you pick two different characters from the outset, but you also get to travel the world. So you get to go to Atlantis, you get to go to Italy uh, and go to the leading tower of Pisa. Um, you know, it's it's just something that we would not see in any other Castlevania games, even up to this day, we still haven't seen. So I just like the fact that it just felt completely different. Um, it's also the only game, one of the few games that actually is a direct sequel to Bram Stoker's Dracula. You know, they really try to connect it to the Dracula continuity um, from, you know, the earlier games. So uh, from the, you know, from the book. Um, and so it, it because of that, it feels a lot different. And the fact that it takes place in the 1910s, you know, around World War One, it means that the game just has a different aesthetic than all the other Castlevania games, which makes me appreciate a lot more. Do you think so, Paul? I mean, am I just talking crazy here? No, absolutely. No, <laughs> what you're saying makes perfect sense. It's, you know, it doesn't have like an anime feel. You know what I mean? It's. And and even the soundtrack reflects that. Like I found that a lot of the tracks were like a little bit darker, a little bit grittier, so to speak. I don't know. Maybe that's the genesis, but it kind of fits in with that whole theme. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what what do you think, Jeff? I mean, did you find that the look of the game, you know, made for something unexpected? Yeah, definitely. I think when you, I mean, in preparation for this, being played a lot of Castlevania, and as much as Rondo, it kind of you can see that it's a little bit of a step up in terms of maybe even the art direction, but this really, this really feels like a game that kind of metaphorically kind of smacks you around the face and go like, you think, you know, Castlevania Well, check this out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it's just, it gives you like a lot of variety and, you know, even some of the levels, I mean, with the leaning tower of Pisa level, like you're constantly going up and then, you know, at some point you had to jump from platform to platform and then the platforms start rotating and then you have to go up and then you have to go to the right. And it just makes for a very, you know, Twitch based, you know, kind of approach to Castlevania, which is not something that you generally associate with Castlevania. Castlevania always tends to be more ponderous and heavy, you know, whereas this game doesn't have that. Um, and that whole diagonal, like that whole diagonal aspect to that level, even yeah. now, I hadn't really played anything like that before or even the level where the platforms are going down yeah, and the water's yeah. going up and like it's yeah, just yeah, a yeah. completely yeah, yeah, yeah. different way to play, you know, an action platformer. It, 
yeah, it's it's really cool. And apparently, you know, with those technological, you know, the you know feats that the developers were able to achieve, it's not surprising that the game had a lot of developmental difficulties. Um, it was actually one of the few Castlevania games that was actually delayed. And, you know, the official company line was, you know, we needed to polish it. And that makes perfect sense. But the team had so many difficulties that they actually thought that they were cursed. So apparently they thought that, you know, they had brought in this tapestry and they had hung it up. And the Japanese being very superstitious, you know, things just started to go awry and things started happening. And they were just like, this tapestry is bringing a curse down on our team. <laughs> and and so what they did was they had to affix a talisman you know, a Shinto talisman in order to ward off evil because oh they Lord. genuinely thought that they were cursed. That's that that's great? how bad it was. <laughs> I I found this so amazing. Um, you know, Mishiro Yamane, you know, who was a composer, was talking about this, and I just found it to be so amusing. Um, so that's just one of the tales of development that, you know, we want to leave you with. Um, so I guess with, you know, referencing Yamane, let's talk about her because she would later, you know, become more popular for Symphony and she was basically synonymous with Castlevania after Symphony. You know, she was the one that did all the soundtracks. Um, she recently even did the soundtrack to Bloodstained, which was one of the redeeming factors of that game. Um, Jeff, we're not going to get you on your soapbox on that. <laughs> no, it's know, not. Maybe for another time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but this was actually the first Castlevania game she composed. And because she has a, a classical background, you know, the game had a lot of influence from German composer Johann Sebastian Bach. And so this game has a very Baroque feel. So, you know, with Castlevania, I think this is the game that you started seeing, you know, the Baroque identity that we would later associate with like Symphony, with Aria of Sorrow, and all the other later Castlevania games. Because before this, it was more rock-oriented. But this one, it was just much more Baroque in terms of its organs, in terms of you know, the classical orientation. So I personally love this soundtrack. Uh, I, I know it sounds harsh to some ears, but I think that it has some of the best melodies, you know, in the Castlevania series. Um, so what do you think, Paul? I, I also like it. I mean, I it's like you said with the with the Genesis sound chip, like either it's kind of a love or hate thing. And even for me, like I mostly love the Genesis sound although like some like for example the electronic arts games boy like those sound really harsh but this one doesn't they they knew what they were doing even the dance of the holy man remix you know yeah. like obviously the snes is untouchable in that regard but like the dance of the holy man remix in this game just fits the game really well it's like a little bit darker you know i i i, I like it man i think it's fine you know again Take it or leave it with the Genesis sound chip, but they really do well with it. And on top of that, you know, like the other games that we talked about here, like Castlevania 4 and Rondo, it also has the arrangements of the three classic Castlevania songs. So Vampire Killer, Bloody Tears, and Beginning. Um, so if you ever wanted to listen to those tracks on a Yamaha FM sound chip, <laughs> you know, give that a go. Um, I would say probably out of all the arrangements, it's probably the worst one, just because... You know, it sounds a lot more metally. You know, it just has that harsh, you know, FM sound. Um, you know, I feel like the tracks, you know, that are best off the soundtrack are the ones that are original to it. Um, because when you hear something like Bloody Tears, you're comparing it to how it sounded in yes. other, in other, you know, sound chips. And I think that, 
you know, reflects poorly upon it because, you know, the FM sound chip was good for doing original sound, not necessarily kind of taking something from, you know, another sound chip and trying to recreate it there. Um, would you agree, Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to kind of continuing my playthrough. Um, and I've now got on my YouTube playlist, I've got all the Castlevania soundtracks. So it's, I'm really looking forward to going back and, and like listen to the different versions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Cam, what are your final thoughts on Castlevania Bloodlines? It's a great addition to the series. Um, it's, I mean, it's almost a shame that it's kind of gone inaccessible for so many people for so long. Um, thank goodness they included it on the, uh, the collection that recently released because Lord knows why they didn't include Rondo and, and even Dracula X for that matter on it. But I mean, that's a discussion for another time. Well, Rondo's pretty easy because they, they released the Requiem collection, and so they yeah. didn't want to cannibalize that. Um, yeah, true, true, but... I, it would have made perfect it's, sense. It's on Switch. <laughs> <laughs> it would have made perfect sense. It would have made sense. It belonged there, right? And yeah. anyway, anyway, like I said, that's that's a discussion for another time. Uh, yeah, Bloodlines is a great game. Um, I, I It stays very, very true to the um, the traditional Castlevania feel. And but just a bit sped up, as we've mentioned before. Yeah, definitely yeah. not a bad thing. P- probably more of a good thing than anything, especially in contrast to Dracula X on on Super Nintendo, which seems like you know you're you're chomping through mud the whole time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think, Jeff? Uh, final thoughts. I know that you uh you liken one of the bosses to the Black Knight in Monty Python, so I want to hear a little bit more about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I it's exactly uh, he's talking the, the stage one boss. <laughs> You like take its arms off, and I'm thinking it's going to start kicking me in a minute, isn't it? So yeah, it starts kicking me. So <laughs> I, could never, I, I could probably recite most of that movie, so I'm not going to do that now. But yeah, that, I just thought this is they've clearly been watching some Monty Python when they were designing this. It's great. <laughs> probably. Any parting thoughts on Castlevania Bloodlines, Paul? Hey, it's a good game. You know, I, I for me, it's not as preferable to play as Castlevania Four or Rondo. And that's also partly because I I just know a lot of the beats from those other two games, whereas Bloodlines is still relatively new to me. So, you know, there are there are kind of like some cheap shots where I'm like, uh, if I had played you when I was a kid, I would have seen that coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but absolutely. now it's like, ah. <laughs> and the controls are not, the controls aren't quite as tight. Like, I find the whip swinging to be really difficult and kind of obtuse. You know, there's there's a few complaints here and there, but overall, it's a good game. Yeah, well, I Can don't know. Can we man. talk I, about yeah. the whip just for one quick moment? Okay, here? go ahead. I find it a bit odd how John or Johnny, when he's standing, he can only whip forward, but when he's jumping, he can whip in multiple directions. <laughs> yes, which is kind of a little weird quirk there. That's kind of I, that's all I want to say. About yeah, that. yeah. Well, he's jumping; he can whip in eight directions. Yeah. Um. So you know, it's 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 kind of a an unfortunate kind of design choice um but hey that's what you have to live with you have to live within the confines of what you've been given oh yeah uh, absolutely yeah yeah but no i i honestly i don't know if it's because you know every time that i test out a new tv or something uh and i play the the you know genesis this is the game that i test out you know because i know how it looks i love how it looks you know even with the color palette of the Genesis, you know, I still love, you know, how much color they were able to get out of this game. Um, it, it just feels very individual in its character and identity. Um, so for me, I know this is sacrilege, but I would put this over Rondo of Blood. 
So now you can just fire me completely. Um, yeah. Well, that was the plan from the get-go, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So I'm, I'm just going out on a blaze of glory. Um, so, but yeah, if you haven't played it, play the Castlevania Anniversary Collection. All the games are over there. I would recommend that you play the Japanese one because, as we said, the Western one is the Tabasco version, and you don't want to play the Tabasco version. And I plus agree. The, Jap- the Japanese one has Johnny Morris, and that's what you want to play. You want to play as Johnny Morris. Um, the other thing about this game that I find very interesting is that it also has an easy mode. Um, so even if you play the Western version, you still have an easy mode and you can set the amount of continues. So it's a, it's an accessible game if you're trying to ease your way into Castlevania. And it's a game that, you know, like we said, it just keeps moving forward. It's a game that you always have to keep moving forward because it doesn't feel like other Castlevania games. So um, I don't know, man, I, I freaking love this game. Um, and maybe I'm the odd man out here. But with that said, um, let me just round it out. You know, what do you think overall, Cam, about this 16-bit, you know, trilogy of games? Uh, do you think that it surpasses the original one? You know, with the original one particularly having Simon 2 in there, which was kind of a weak point. Um, how do you think it compares? It it, it does surpass. I, I don't think that's uh, even debatable, in my opinion. There's just so much more variety in uh, in these three titles, especially if you play them all separately, they they really are three different games. Where on NES one and three, they still f- like three kind of feels like more of an extension of one, whereas all three of these are their own entity. Yeah, yeah, they do feel like their own individual games, and they all have their own style and their own approach to Castlevania. So yeah. all of them feel like that particular team's reimagining of and, Castlevania. And all three, all three styles are extremely well done, in my opinion. Yeah, what do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I absolutely agree with Cam. It's I don't think you can really even suggest that the eight bit has got anything over over the you know the sixteen bit range. I think uh, it makes castlevania a little bit more accessible which was which was no bad thing it's not as if they were uh um you know it's not like they became easy in any way shape or form uh so i think the 16-bit era was i think huge for castlevania but also when you look at it now you know retrospectively this 16-bit era is now quite a a unique period for castle for the for the franchise itself and uh it's great that you've got Three games here, which offer very different experiences and very different, like slight changes in the gameplay, and you can play all three and not feel like one is one is detrimental to the other in, in terms of your experience. So I think we're we're incredibly lucky that we've got three out of these four, which exceptional games. Yeah, and and it's all you know. The three games are kind of like what the Castlevania series could have been if they had chosen to go down a particular route. Mm. Unfortunately, it was cut short by the Symphony kind of evolution bloodline. Um, But, you know, it was all kind of a way that Castlevania could have evolved from there. And I would have been interested to see how they would have adapted that to the 32-bit generation, any of these games, honestly. Um, I think, of course, Rondo being the closest one to an adaptation with Symphony. Um, but Paul, let me finish up with you. Uh, what do you think about you know the 16-bit you know games compared to the 8-bit ones? Well, I mean, compared to the 8-bit ones, it's we've said it already, right? They're superior, like straight up. There's nothing wrong with the 8-bit games in particular, but these offer a different experience. 
you know, in particular Rondo with the CD soundtrack and Castlevania four with the, you know, the, the better controls and so on. And you know what? Bloodlines, man, with the different characters you can pick and the different paths they can take it all, you know, it all offers something different, you know, to compare it, to wonder what it would be like if they hadn't strayed from this formula you know what, man? I'm just glad we have these. Mm. I can replay these. I don't really even need a new one. Okay. Well, that works for me. <laughs> well, think uh, about it. Like, what are they going to do, right? Like, for a while, you know, into the 32-bit era and beyond, I mean, we're probably going to be looking at 2.5D versions if they had kind of kept with this style. Perhaps. You know, I, I, don't, I think Symphony is kind of an anomaly, and the yeah. DS games are done that way because they're, you know, because they're on the DS. If they were on superior hardware, they might have tried something that didn't look as good, right? Yeah, yeah. And let me just mention one thing that I didn't mention with Castlevania Bloodlines, and that's that the sequel to it is basically Portrait of Ruin on the DS, now that you mention it, Paul. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of a continuation you know, with John Morris's, I think, uh, son. You know, so if you want to play a continuation of that, but in the Metroidvania uh, style, you know, Mishiro Yamane composed part of the soundtrack to that one and also co-composed by Yusuko Shiro. So there's a lot to look forward to in Portrait of Ruin. Um, I think uh, let's just finish it out with a a quick fire out of this three games. Let's not even talk about Dracula X. Paul, which one would you take? Look, if you if you sat me down and told me to play one of them for half an hour, I would take Rondo. If you gave me three hours, I'd take Castlevania 4. How about you, Jeff? Same. Absolutely. Yep, 100% agree with uh, Paul on that one. Cam? Uh, <laughs> it's, I always, it's always a toss-up between Rondo and uh, and 4 for me. It, it's it's flip, flip a coin, throw one at me, and I'll play it. Yeah, I would say Castlevania 4. I would say Castlevania 4, and that's not surprising. Uh, but, <laughs> but closely afterwards, you know, Bloodlines, and, you know, very, very, very near the back is Rondo Blood. I'm just kidding, guys. <laughs> I'm just kidding, guys. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just pulling your leg at this point. Um, but that about wraps it up for all of us. Um, so, Cam, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram under the handle 16-bit. Um, no numbers, all letters, and with an underscore in between 16 and bit. Awesome. Awesome. And you can find us at the Region Free Gamers Podcast. My name is Ozzy. We have Paul here with us and we have Jeff, who you can also find at G-Spot Gaming. Uh, With respect to the podcast, we have a website out. So if you want a companion piece to uh, these episodes, that is a great companion piece. You can leave us your feedback. We have a survey that you can you know, let us know how we did, whether you like the episode or not, how we can improve. You can leave us comments. And on top of that, you know, we have images you know, from the titles. And we also have links to all the songs that we're playing um, on the particular episode. So if you wanted to know what the titles are, etc., definitely go to the website and check it out. Uh, And beyond that, again, I just want to mention, make sure to review the podcast if you like what you're listening. And uh, I hope that you have enjoyed it. And that's going to wrap it up for all of us. And thank you very much for joining us on this fine day. And until next time, we'll take up, I guess, the Nintendo 64 versions of Castlevania or something. Oh, Um, God. but, (laughs) But until then, keep swinging.